My own Paul is not a pastor anymore. He was my youth pastor, instrumental in God calling me to ministry, pivotal in me getting my first job in ministry, convinced me to go to seminary, was the lead on my ordination council, gave us premarital counseling, helped officiate our wedding, taught me how to be a pastor, has known me since I was 12, let me cry on his suit when I was in seventh grade, my grandfather's funeral, and he's not a pastor anymore because of failure. And this news comes in the same week as multiple other prominent voices in pop culture Christianity announcing with ironic pride their own apostasies from the Christian faith. The guy who inspired me to try to become an author before I turned 30, even though I didn't agree with the book that he published in his 20s, showed me it was possible. He announced his departure from Christianity. Likewise, a prominent songwriter within Christianity announced departure from Christianity. It's a funny thing, I didn't know his name until this announcement. And it's making more waves in Christianity than it should, which means that people are placing their faith in the man on the platform than they are the man who rose from the dead. You understand, these figures, these people, they are fallible, but the word is infallible. Do not place your faith in mortal man. Place your faith in the one who never fails, the one who rose again from the grave. And Paul, you as you mentor, if you're an older woman in the faith, you mentor younger women in the faith, you're an older man in the faith, you younger, mentor younger men in the faith, as you are Paul, to Timothy, to Titus, see to it that you are not the hero in your discipleship relationship. See to it that Jesus is the hero in this relationship. Speak this wisdom over your Timothys. And if this is the proper plural form of the name Titus, Titi, <laughs> tell them Tell them that you don't have the Superman S on your chest. You're not the hero here. Jesus is. You tell them you follow me as I follow Christ. And then when you fail, when you mess up, even use that as a discipleship moment. Just like Joshua saw Moses, his mentor, fall before the back to Egypt committee. That even when you fall, you would show them, look, this is where I fell. This is where it went wrong. This is where I let us down. Our mentors, the people we follow, they are fallible, but Jesus has never failed. He's never failed, and he never will. Let's look at the context for Titus, geographically. Take a look at this. This is planet Earth. We're zooming in on the Mediterranean Sea. Rome is up here. Jerusalem is here. The island at the very middle is Crete. Cyprus is over here. Modern day Turkey is above us. That is Israel. Crete is 160 miles long, 35 miles wide at its largest portion. In the book of Acts, Paul, while a prisoner, sails through the Lee of Crete. 
and arrives at this port. It's a real live port. It's named in Acts, and it still exists today. It's called Fair Havens. The Bible is so specific, it even names exact ports of call, which still exist today. The Bible is amazing. And to this day, exactly what Paul said is still true, that there's this nor'easter wind that makes it very difficult to sail northward around the Lee of Crete. They didn't listen to him at first, and so it gives him an I told you so moment in the last chapters of Acts. This is the island where Paul took Titus and commissions him. He leaves Titus on Crete and tells him to go around to every town and appoint elders in every town. And he gives him the same standard that he gave, uh, gave Timothy, but because they're slightly different ministry contexts, because they have, they have different tasks qua their ministry contexts, Timothy leading a cull of unqualified elders, Titus to appoint new elders, like a cross between like a seminary ministry, training them up, and then the ministry of a church and elder board to appoint new elders, carrying Paul's apostolic authority. Titus is called to do the work of an elder board himself, to appoint elders from every town across Crete. Now, Paul would then leave, leaving Titus to this work, but then Titus would follow Paul and join him for his work in Corinth. But in the meantime, this is Titus's commissioning, this is Titus's instruction, this is the book that we read. Our small group curriculum, which goes from middle school through the cemetery, it was the same exact passage. Last week, I looked at the opening and the closing of chapter one. This week, our small group curriculum covers chapter two. Chapter two is awesome, and I really want to preach it, but I won't. Join a small group. <laughs> this left behind some text in chapter one that I believe we should cover. So let's look together at Titus chapter one, beginning in verse five. Titus chapter one, beginning in verse five. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be, able to, may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. All right, Jesse, what in the world is a circumcision party? That sounds like the worst party ever. <laughs> okay, we'll go back and give context, drawing from the book of Acts, the book of Galatians, and unpack exactly what Paul's talking about in Titus 1. Let's go to verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. I left you in Crete. It's possible that Paul led Titus to Christ. He would lead Titus to Christ and then appoint him to ministry. While T 
Timothy agreed to undergo circumcision, according to Acts 16, because he was son of a Greek man and a Jewish woman, and for this reason, the Jewish men of his hometown of Lystra didn't take him seriously. He underwent circumcision as a grown man just to remove that barrier to the gospel to be able to share the gospel with them. Titus, however, refused. That's a little bit funny to me, because imagine when they broke the news to Timothy. Wait, we didn't have to do that? <laughs> I pray for Timothy and Titus's relationship. <laughs> Titus was precious to Paul and his ministry. He brought him with him to Corinth to address some of the, the, the doctrinal issues and the corruption and the hypocrisy that had infiltrated that whole church. And you can see the multiple times, look, look how many times Titus is named in 2 Corinthians. Take note of these references. If you want to get to know Titus a little bit better, look at what Paul says about him at all these junctures throughout 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13, chapter 7, verse 6, verses 13 and 14, chapter 8, verses 6, 16, chapter 8, verses 6, 16 and 23, and then the 12th chapter and the 18th verse. All of these, all of these mention Titus and how precious he is to the ministry of Paul. If you want to get to know the original recipient, the individual to whom this book was first written, you want to get to know Titus a little bit better. This is where you see Paul describe him in 2 Corinthians. Look at verse 6, because in verses 6 through 8, we see another list of qualifications for an elder, pastor, or overseer. These three terms are used interchangeably. Elder, pastor, overseer. And you can see that the standard is high, man. It's difficult. It's difficult. All right, look, if anyone is above reproach, verse six, above reproach, he's gonna say that again in the next verse. The standard is high for a pastor. The husband of one wife, meaning a one-woman man. Okay, and just, just for clarity, Paul did not hold to a Seattle definition of marriage. Okay? So the office of elder, pastor, overseer, again in Titus 1, refers to a man, a husband of one wife, and his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. His children will be believers. This is interesting, right? Because I think it, I think it indicates whether or not this guy is the real deal. If he's the same man in teaching that he is when he's at home with his kids. Because his kids can judge his character better than we can. His kids see him when his football team is losing. You know, his kids see him before he's had coffee. His kids see him when his blood sugar is low. And his kids see him, they see him when he steps on a toy in the middle of the living room floor, especially a Lego. <laughs> ah! His kids are there and they hear what comes out of his mouth. Upon impact. <laughs> they don't just see the well put together version that goes up in public on camera under lights. They see, they see the real deal. And they can tell us much about the man's character. And if they're believers, they believe in the same God that their father believes in. And their father must really believe in that God. They're an excellent judge of character, as children are. We're blessed by this. We, our, our children, our kids, they, when, they, when they're saved, they come tell us. 
this precious little knock a few feet off the ground on the door. They come, we're hiking, Cougar Mountain. There's a tug on my shirt. They, they tell us. And they understand Romans 10, 9. They pray this, and they're baptized, and it's beautiful to see. And then, you know, they, they go to school, and they want to evangelize all their friends, and they want to build their birthday parties around gospel-centered themes so that they can have a gospel presentation at their birthday parties. <laughs> and they're in music class, and a rabbi comes to teach them the meaning of the dreidel, and Austin raises his hand to contribute. <laughs> The Jews are outside the will of God because they deny that Jesus is the Messiah and if they haven't believed that Jesus is the Messiah, they're never gonna see him. <laughs> we got a parent-teacher conference after that one. <laughs> I gave him knocks. <laughs> but we had to work on a gracious delivery of the truth. It's a beautiful thing to see. I mean, we can take no credit for this. I'm super blessed to have a godly bride who helps teach our children scripture and that pours into them. The Holy Spirit works on their heart and they tell us when they're saved. They'll pray for us because they're all still babies. They're still growing up. They've got a long way to go. And this qualification that his children will be believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination seems to speak to older children Insubordination is interesting. I mean, for example, if you want to, I'll, I'll, I'll demonstrate. Like, I'll go get my kids, and I'll get them to the car. All right? Eventually, they will get to the car. Now, they may jump on every piece of furniture in route, but yeah, eventually, they'll do what they're told. But this word debauchery, I mean, I don't know of many toddlers who could be accused of debaucherous behavior. <laughs> so this seems to speak to grown children, but then again, that's very culturally nuanced. What does it mean to be grown? Because in their original day and age, I mean, original, especially Hebrew culture, at your bar mitzvah, your bat mitzvah at 13, you are a fully-fledged adult. That's what it meant to be grown back then. But our, our society, the threshold into adulthood is really vague. Like, at what point in our culture are you considered an adult? What, like 40? <laughs> Am I an adult yet? You know, I could probably still get all my parents' insurance. <laughs> So this is, we struggle with this because we don't know exactly where adulthood is, but the original recipients probably did at 13, you own your own business. <laughs> and in our culture, we're like, whoa, whoa, 13-year-olds uh, are not capable of that. I think we underestimate what young people are capable of. I think when we set the bar high, they rise to it. I think when we set the bar low, well, they rise to that too. So this standard for the pastor's children that they would not be open to accusations of debauchery or insubordination. There must be a threshold whereupon those children grow and then become their own adults. Their own, uh, he becomes his own man, she becomes her own woman, and whatever they do is not necessarily an indicator of their upbringing. But there is a threshold whereupon those children's belief and lives could be indicators as to whether or not this guy is the real deal at home. If he's the same man on the platform that he is at his house when Florida State football is playing poorly, which was every game last season. <laughs> Verse seven, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. There it is again, standard is high. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. 
Yeah, but Jesse, that's a bit of a stickler position. Why don't we show some grace? Okay. Jesse, as you look for the Highlands Kent campus and teaching pastor role, we've got a guy in mind. He's really great. And he's not, he's not arrogant. He's not quick-tempered. He's not a drunkard. He's not greedy for gain. Only one thing about him, he's just really violent. That's the only thing. <laughs> Everything else checks out. No, it doesn't work, does it? The standard is high. Should we lower the standard? By no means. The standard is high. It is more difficult to become a pastor than an elected official, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) You must be hospitable. Literally translating the Greek means a lover of strangers. I don't know who you are, but I love you. A lover of strangers. When we lived in Nashville, we helped create community. Shady Hollow Drive. Little end of our neighborhood with a cul-de-sac. New houses, so everybody was there at the same time. Everybody moved in at the same time. A lot of them had kids. So we bought more sleds than we needed. So when it snowed, that was how we met our neighbors. We brought them out and let them use our sleds after signing a waiver. And we would use our fire pit at the end of our driveway, and we'd make s'mores, and there'd be a big metal bucket there full of ice and drinks. And the kids could watch movies cast on the garage door while the parents had s'mores and fellowship there at the end of my driveway. It got to the point where when I was traveling for Lifeway and bringing, bringing my family with me, they would call while we were out of state and say, hey, can we use your, can we use your driveway? in your fire pit, and your grill. (laughs) They burned my grill. I didn't know that was possible. (laughs) Set my grill on fire while I was gone. It was worth it. It was worth it. It was a blessed thing. I'd always have like an extra steak there for whoever walked up. You know, extra ribs for whoever drove past. Extra piece of chicken for anybody who came home from work. Got to the point where they would drive up without even looking, roll their window down and stick their hand out. Now, when we moved here, I thought that the Seattle freeze was a climatological term. <laughs> it is not. But it's thawing around my house. Anybody who runs on Jericho Street mandatorily must give me a high five. <laughs> and so far, my high five reciprocation rate is 100%. And I have a new strategy as well. We're going to go door to door and just kick the door down and walk in and grab them by the arm and say, Come and be my friend. <laughs> Pray for me. <laughs> Pray for my neighbors more. <laughs> Must be hospitable, lover of strangers, a lover of good. Translated literally means a lover of the things that God loves. You must love the things that God loves. You must be self-controlled. An upright translates literally to righteous, holy. And this last word has convicted me, discipline. I've been convicted while teaching this text to be more disciplined in my own life, more disciplined myself. Why is the standard so high? Because even secret sin can affect the army of God. Joshua chapter 7 tells the story. The army, army of Israel is supernaturally protected by God. And as they entered the land, the land of Canaan, the promised land, they simultaneously were being given this land. 
In Joshua 11, they were also pouring out God's wrath upon the people of Canaan, upon whom God had decreed his coming wrath for 400 years, just like he did the flood, just like he did Sodom and Gomorrah, just like he will Revelation 11. He decreed that his wrath was coming, and this time, rather than a flood, rather than fire, rather than an earthquake, it is the supernaturally protected army of Israel who suffered zero casualties in battle until defying the clear instruction not to take any of the pagan items for himself, Achan takes the ceremonial robe of Shinar, takes 50 shekels of silver and a gold bar weighing 50 shekels, and he brings them to the camp, and then he hides them under his tent. Nobody knows about these secret pagan treasures that I've taken. I know we were instructed not to do this, but it's not harming anybody. It's literally under my tent. I can't even see it. Okay, I've deleted my browser history. Nobody knows about my secret sin. And then they lose the anointing, and they enter battle the next day, and they suffer their first casualties. Because even secret sin affects the army of God. That's why the standard is high, above reproach. Now tell me this, do these standards apply only to elders and pastors? Is God okay with people who are not elders being debaucherous and violent? I mean, if you, just because you're not a pastor, does that mean that you don't have to exercise self-control? You're not called to holiness? That it's okay if you're greedy for gain? Of course not. The standard is the same. Moreover, those of us who are called to be elders, overseers, pastors, are not born with a different nature from anybody else. I'm just as sinful when I was born as you were, my friend. Positively, the only difference between you and me is that I was given this set of marching orders. That's it. That's it. The standard is high for all of us. If the Lord has used this standard to convict you, to call you higher, you listen. You listen. If he's calling you to repent from sin, you listen. Even if you're not called to be an elder specifically, if you're called by this text to buck up, do it. Only the Holy Spirit of God would call you to repent from sin. There's no other spirit that would call that from you. So listen. And, then, and also envision with me what could be. Envision with me what could be. What if... What if every Christian aspired to this level of personal holiness in their walk with God? What would the church look like to the community around it? Oh, man. The building could fall apart. The music could be lousy, but none of that would matter because the people inside are holy, have integrity, and clear consciences when they invite other people into the grace of God in which they abide themselves. So, if God's calling you higher to this standard Buck up, repent from sin, aspire unto this, and then watch the church win. What a beautiful thing. Picture it, a church of over 2,000, every single one of whom leads a life of holiness, aspiring unto the qualifications stipulated for those of an elder. It's a beautiful thing. Only good could come from that. So you listen. Listen. Slaughter the precious things in your life that drag you down from sin. You will never regret the cost as you sacrifice the things that drag you down to become more like Jesus. Listen, listen, and buck up to be above reproach. Look at verse nine. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. All right, that's pretty fun. 
and also to rebuke those who contradict it. That's not fun at all. I've had to do my share of that. But it's part of the job. The words as taught are important. The pastor cannot hear the word taught properly and then teach it improperly because he's culpable before God. He's heard it taught properly and he chose to misrepresent it. He must hold firmly to the word as taught. Likewise, he cannot take the word of God and then hear it taught properly and then himself conflagrate it to make it more offensive. Rather, he is to hold firmly to it as taught. He may not dilute it. He may not adapt it to make it more culturally acceptable. He must hold firm to the trustworthiness of Scripture. Leading a life that is above reproach, the husband of one wife, whose children are believers. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but he must be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined, holding firmly and rightly upon the, the truth that this can be trusted. This is the word of God. He must hold firmly to it as taught. Look at verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers. Man, doesn't that sound like it was written yesterday? <laughs> empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Here's the story of Titus and his own perspective on this circumcision party. The circumcision party were a group that added on to the gospel. You take the gospel of Jesus, and then they added on. Oh, and by the way, they also have to be circumcised. They also have to obey the law of Moses. It's not enough just to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and so be saved. No, you also have to be circumcised. This was the, the group called the Judaizers, the circumcision party. Here's how Titus responded when that nonsense came up. Galatians 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. Paul is writing again. This time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation. Let's pause there. Paul received revelation, God revealing things to him. We study the book of Titus not because of the man Paul, but because of the Holy Spirit of God who inspired the book of Titus through Paul. Paul was God's chosen instrument to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, but if it were not Paul, it would have been someone else. It is not in Paul that we place our trust and faith. It is in the Holy Spirit of God who gave such revelations as these to the man Paul, amen? Not the man Paul, it's the one Paul worships. That's who our trust is in. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. The Judaizers came to town and Titus was having none of it. That's why Titus drew the line. And we, we appreciate that about Titus. We respect that about Titus because people were demanding it of him that he be circumcised. And he said, no. Now, conversely, look at Timothy's perspective. Nobody asked us of Timothy. Timothy volunteered to go the extra mile to overcome a barrier so that they would hear the gospel from him. Do you see the difference? 
Titus, it was demanded that he, a Greek, be circumcised. And to the glory of God, he said, no. Timothy, nobody expected this of him, but to the glory of God, he volunteered to overcome this barrier so that they would hear the gospel from him. Taking all measures to become all things to all men so that by God's grace, some might be saved. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. Peter was embroiled in this controversy of the circumcision party as well. And he had some tendencies to go back to his old legalistic ways. You can imagine, though, it's difficult because he grew up a good Jewish boy, abiding by all the apodictic, ceremonial, societal, and sacrificial laws demanded of him by the Torah. Okay, obeyed every one of these commands. You understand? And then imagine living in this time. Imagine living upon the turn of the covenants. Imagine living after Acts chapter 2. You are a good, devout Jew. You adhere to the Torah. You obey the Jewish law. And then your rabbi from your synagogue took a trip to Jerusalem at Pentecost and came back with some striking news. We never talk about what happened in the synagogues after Acts chapter 2. Ever considered that? Imagine worship that Shabbat. Imagine what that was like, that, that Sabbath. Like imagine, imagine what it was like in the synagogue as the rabbi takes his platform, but he's not wearing ceremonial tassels. Like something's, he's missing elements to his robes. And he's got some news. Messiah has come. And apparently it is Yeshua. It's Jesus of Nazareth. Everything is different now. Everything has changed The societal laws are no longer binding. Now, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. This is striking news. This meant their salvation for the Gentiles. Jews woke up and thanked Yahweh every day that they were not Gentiles. And if they bumped into a Gentile on the street, they'd have to go back home, become ceremonially clean, and change their robes. And now the rabbi who came back from Pentecost, hearing from Peter, who walked with this rabble-rouser Yeshua, is claiming that The law is fulfilled in Jesus, and now there's only one law, and that is this law of love, and if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved, and there's crab served in the fellowship hall. (laughs) Can you imagine how that was difficult for some? It was difficult for some, and they liked to hold on to the Old Testament laws, and here's the real reason why they would do it, is because it made them feel more righteous. Legalism does that. Holding on to these extra laws and and regulations, they make us feel more righteous. And that's why people actually take comfort in legalism. Peter was one of those. He struggled at first. He struggled at first. It was Peter the night before the crucifixion who told Jesus, I'll never leave you. And Jesus said, before the rooster crows three times, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter denies Jesus and denies Jesus. And then at the the crow, the rooster, denies him and locks eyes with Jesus and he's devastated. After the resurrection, Jesus appears on the beach. Peter is back up to his old tricks, going right back to what he did before he walked with Jesus. He's fishing again. Peter sees the resurrected Jesus on the beach, throws his robe to the side and swims all the way to shore. By the time he gets there, Jesus has already produced a charcoal fire. That is one of my favorite miracles of the New Testament. Because charcoal fires take time to produce. Jesus was a grill master. And it doesn't say how the fish was seasoned, but in our hearts we all know it was Cajun. (laughs) 
And so Peter and Jesus are there and Peter's thinking like, oh man, please don't bring up the fact that I denied you three times. Please don't bring up the fact that I denied you three times. Please don't bring up the fact that I denied you three times. And what does Jesus do? <laughs> Peter, do you love me? And it, it wounds Peter. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? You know that I love you. Feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? And it wounds Peter that he would ask him three times, why did Jesus do that? He met him right at the place where he had failed him the most so he could show him grace and ministry there. Is it possible that God is trying to bring you in your heart back to that place of your deepest shame that he might meet you there and minister healing to your heart? And in what way did Jesus minister healing to Peter's heart? He put him to work. And then Peter, the rock upon whom the New Testament church would be built, gets up in front of a multinational crowd of Jews gives an expository ha, sermon in Joel chapter two. And there's Jews from every language, every dialect of Hebrew present in Jerusalem. He preaches the word. Everybody can hear and understand in their own language. This is the original intent and the purpose of the gift of tongues, that the work of the Tower of Babel would be lifted and the language barrier eliminated so that the gospel would go out first among the Jews and later upon the Gentiles. This is what Jesus meant when he said, you are Cephas, the rock upon whom I will build my church. Our Catholic friends took this quite literally and literally physically built a basilica on top of Peter's dead body. We built a church on Peter. He's down there. I don't think that's what God meant. I think in Acts chapter two, Peter is the one who would present the gospel and the gospel will go out among the Jews. And then later on, God's still working in Peter's heart to confront him, to relinquish his grip on the Old Testament law, to unbutton this thing and show him that now, now there's grace and salvation for all who believe in Jesus, even for Gentiles, regardless of their dietary restrictions. Of all the houses he could have him stay at, he stays at Simon. Peter had many names. Pete, I'm sure. Cephas and Simon. There's another man named Simon in the beach town of Joppa, the same beach whereupon Jonah washed ashore. Simon was a tanner, which meant that he was ceremonially the least clean man in all of Joppa. Had the grossest work and the things that he did for his trade made him ceremonially unclean. So Simon is staying with Simon. Do you see what God did there? And on the roof of Simon's house, God is confronting Peter and there's this sheet and a vision before Peter that shows all these animals who are now on the menu, thank God, and it's raised and lowered three times in front of Peter because Peter needed to learn things in threes. Deny him three times, be restored three times, be shown the menu three times, and there in Acts 10, 13 comes my life verse, get up, kill, and eat. <laughs> and Peter said, I'll never eat anything unclean. And God says, do not call common that which God has made clean. And in this moment, there's a knock at the door, and it's a company of Gentiles who would take Peter to Cornelius' house Cornelius is quite a Gentile name, isn't it? He goes there, and then the gift of tongues pours out upon this group of Gentiles. But it may not have been necessary linguistically because they likely all spoke the same language. The purpose of that miracle was to overcome the prejudice in Peter's heart so that he would see the Holy Spirit poured out upon Gentiles just as he had upon Jews in Acts chapter 2. And so Peter's words at the end of Acts 10 are, who are we to deny these men water to be baptized? The Holy Spirit is poured out upon them just as he has upon us. That's Peter's story, and it makes it all the more significant when he rises up against the circumcision party in Acts 15. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. 
This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? As if the Israelites can pride themselves on their adherence to the law. No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. We no longer have a circumcision party, the Judaizers, the way that Titus did on Crete. But we do have voices chaining hearts with legalism. We do have false teachings that would take the gospel of Jesus Christ and add on to it. The Judaizers said it's not just enough to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and so be saved. It's not just Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It's everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord and is circumcised. That's what the circumcision party said. This is why Paul is telling Titus to silence them. In our context, we may not have the Judaizers, but we do have Mormonism that would take the word of God and add on to it and chain hearts down with legalism. It is a modern iteration of a similar principle. It seems so righteous and good. It makes you more righteous, and that's the point. The basic crux of Mormonism is literally Luciferian, to make yourself like the most high, a god and by your own acts of righteousness, increase your standing. That is directly contrary to the gospel. Christianity and Mormonism are not the same thing. We do not have Judaizers, but we do have Mormonism in our culture. We do have Jehovah's Witnesses. We do have Islam, which portends to add on to the word of God. We do have legalistic brands of Christianity legalistic Christianity that would take the grace of God and add on a list of chores. When you add something on to the gospel, aren't you presupposing that the gospel is insufficient? You can see the enemy's fingerprints on this. If you came to Highlands Community Church and your heart is chained down by legalistic teachings and you believe that you're unsavable or you need to save yourself by certain deeds, certain works of righteousness, certain acts that you carry out by the glory of God, you are hereby free. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. And if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. You are free indeed. You are free indeed. Thank Jesus. If your heart came in shackled, praise God. If your heart came in shackled, I want to hear the chains fall today. Do you understand? You leave those chains 
on the floor, you are freed, you are saved by grace, alone, in faith, alone, through Jesus, alone. And when they come to your door and they offer you their shackles, you show them the key. You understand? This teaching, like Titus says, must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not teach. I've gained 15 pounds since we moved here. (laughs) I pick my nose at stoplights. I yell at Florida State football on the TV. I have ADD and I leave the seat up. (laughs) Pop. If your faith is in me, it's in the wrong place. All right, the elders who hold me accountable, to whom I confess my sin, who give me accountability for for my sins, and everybody who sits next to me at stoplights can tell you, I will eventually let you down. don't, Don't place your faith in me, you place your faith in Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, one who has never failed and never will. He alone is the one who is able to save. In light of this text, if God has called you because of the high standard given to elders, pastors, overseers, to buck up, do it. Do it. By all means, sacrifice. Cut off anything in your life that causes you to stumble. You will never regret the cost. Listen to the Holy Spirit's calling unto higher levels of holiness and be grateful for the graces you do because nobody's ever been perfect. There's only one man who's ever been able to live up to this standard perfectly, and that's Jesus. So what are we as elders we, the unqualified, to do. The grace of God is the only chance that we have. God's calling you to the office of elder. Listen, this is not a drill. God's calling you, and you're nominated. You may begin the process and become a candidate, become an elder at Highlands Community Church. To the glory of God, by the study of 1 Timothy 1, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1. And if you've been chained by legalism like that of the circumcision party and its modern iterations in our context, would you abide in the freedom that comes only through the gospel of Jesus Christ? Silence the enemy's voice. We chain you down by legalism and abide in grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus Christ. And if you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, I wanna pray with you now as you pray with me. Let's go before God. God, I believe in you. I believe that you love the world so much that you gave your one and only son that if I would believe in him, I would not die but have everlasting life. I confess, God, that I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I confess, God, that the wages of that sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. I believe that Jesus is the way. I believe that Jesus is the truth. I believe that Jesus is the life and I know there's no way I can come to you, Father, except through Jesus. And so, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, I confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord. Highlands Community Church, would you say Jesus is Lord? Say it, Jesus is Lord. 
I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. By grace alone, through faith alone, let me be saved, let me be saved, let me be saved. Not because of anything that I've done, not because of my righteousness, not because of my deeds, only because of the grace and love and forgiveness and atoning mercy of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God, I lift up those who are being called higher in their walks with you. God, that you would create in us a pure heart and renew a steadfast spirit within us. Grant us a willing spirit to sustain us. Cleanse us with hyssop and we will be clean. Wash us, make us whiter than snow. Restore to us the joy of your salvation and we will teach transgressors your ways and worship in abundance, God. We're sorry for where we failed you. We're grateful for your grace that meets us here. Now, God, will we all aspire to lead lives that are above reproach, with integrity, clear consciences. God, I lift up those who have been shackled by legalism, that the spirit of the Judaizers is alive and at work today in Seattle. I pray freedom in Jesus' name over those taught legalism by Mormonism, legalism by forms of Christianity that contort the gospel, legalism by the Jehovah's Witnesses, legalism by Islam. I pray in Jesus' name, freedom for the captive, that the Holy Spirit of God, speaking through his inspired word in Titus 1, would silence the enemy's voice and the love of the Father would pour out upon his beloved child, not because of your works, not because of anything that you've done, but because I love you, you're my child. Freedom, freedom, freedom in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and worship with us, some of us, for the very first time as new believers in Jesus Christ and newly freed children of the King.